0: Welcome, everybody, to the Keto Endurance Podcast. I have Doc Edwards, Dr. Jonathan Edwards on again. And we are going to hopefully answer the question that I get almost every day, when to time your nutrients or when to add in the carbohydrates. Jonathan and I are, I believe, on the same page about when and how to add in the carbohydrates. And we wanted to sort of clear up the air, for our listeners. So welcome, Jonathan.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me.
0: Cool. And uh, for those who don't know Jonathan, he is, uh, if you go to Doc, it's Doc Edwards. Fitness. Coach, yep. Jonathan was the team doctor for the AG2R cycling team and has worked with some pretty elite endurance cyclists. I'll put his bio in the show notes so you can read all about him. But worked with a lot of motocross racers and a lot of really interesting people. Misha T. Misha T. and uh, a bunch of bunch of others. There's a whole whole litany of people that Jonathan has made faster and stronger and helped them with uh, their endurance sports training. And then. I'm referring to, well, I guess sports training because they're not all endurance athletes. Mm,
1: True.
0: So talking about nutrient timing, I believe we are on the same page that a foundation of a low-carbohydrate diet is the best diet for endurance athletes. non endurance athletes as well, but for endurance athletes. And uh it's the foundation of fat burning. And then we'll we'll talk a little bit about macronutrients. So Jonathan, what what's your point of view on on what well let me just let you talk and then we'll I'll ask questions as we go.
1: Sure. The you know I the question is is like, you know, nutrient timing. Uh, when you're following, you know, whatever low carbohydrate diet, ketogenic diet, or or what have you, really depends on where you are in the journey, um, and what kind of athlete you are. You know, I think you have to preface that. You know, are you an elite cyclist? Are you an ultra runner? You're a sprinter. Um, you know, all those facts matter um, to how you might prescribe you know, certain interventions is, you know, as far as carbohydrate supplementations, you know, to optimize performance, you know, so you really got to look at where somebody is on the journey and, and just to put two extremes, I mean, a cyclist who trains six hours a day on the bicycle, uh, is in a much different place than, you know, the 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 master's athlete who works every day, uh, who is just three months into it. Um, you know, I have a really good orthopedic surgeon friend who's just, you know, he just wants to do these grand Fondo rides and he's about three months into it, you know, and he's doesn't have the same power, but yet he's lost tons of weight, uh, from instituting a ketogenic diet, um, lost more than 30 pounds already. And anyway, he's just in a much different place than one of my elite cyclists, for example, um, and what I would tell them. And the answers are very different.
0: Right. Everything's context. And I think even that context changes with the point of the season that they're training at. So if you develop an annual training plan, which is what I do with my clients. I don't know how you structure your training plan with your clients. during the off season, your diet's going to look much different than during the base part of the season, during build, during taper. And then, you know, after your race is done, those things are every, the context of the training and the context of the athlete is very relevant in, you know, their addition of, or subtraction of carbohydrates.
1: Yeah, I get it. You know, the goal is to kind of like, you know, what's, What's the optimal way to, to, to say all this, you know, and as I said, it depends on the person, you know, I'll go back to my orthopedic surgeon friend. It's going to take him over a year before he truly adapts to burning fat optimally for energy. You know, it's, it's just, he's not a, you know, he hasn't been an athlete all his life. Um, You know, he's, he's, he's all on board and, you know, he doesn't deviate from it, but it's going to take him that long. Like I'm confident of that. And and I can come from, go from my own example. You know, I I started this, you know, I was cat one bicycle racer, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I remember when I started it, I lost all kinds of power, you know, I mean, to the point where, you know, I had no business competing in a cat one race or a high levels master's race. Um, And I'll never forget, I mean, four months into it, I was like, I can't keep this up. I I just can't put out the numbers. And, but I kept telling myself why, and I knew why. Um, You know, you just don't have that fat mobilization that, you know, that allows you to put out that power um Even when you add the carbohydrates to an extent, anyways, long story short, it took me I would say seven to eight months before I really came around in my own example um, that I was able to like do a twenty minute power test and hold some numbers that seemed you know what I was used to
0: right i I appreciate you making that point. Because I have a, a Facebook group for keto for endurance athletes, and these people get on and, and they're saying, "Hey, I switched to keto. I'm three weeks in, six weeks in, and I still feel bad." And I'm like, "Well, I have some bad news for you that it's going to take you." And I usually say three to six months to get back to your baseline, and then the next six months. You will probably exceed what you did before because your fat oxidation rates have gone up, but yeah. it's a long, slow process. You can't just switch to keto and expect everything to just turn on or off. One of the things that I have told one of my clients, and he's like, well, why does it take so long? Well, you have to think about the life of the cell. The, there's turnover in your cells. And the new mitochondria have a new fat sort, you know, a new primary source of
1: fuel. It's not just the cells, it's actually you're changing the DNA. You're actually changing how the DNA is 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 transcribed. And, and that's a huge thing to get down to the level of the cell nucleus and, yes. you know, and these enzymes like hormone sensitive lipase and you're you're upregulating so many processes, you know, and the these thing called, you know, you know, the HDAC hormone, you know, enzymes. Um, I mean, you could get really nerdy with all of this. And there's it's just it takes that long.
0: Right.
1: Uh, it's just it, it's just how it is. And if somebody's really not willing to take let it take its course, you know, it's it's not it's not for them.
0: No. And they won't become adapted. And I agree. But I think that I was riding with a a group of ladies, a women's cyclist on Tuesday night. We have a ladies-friendly crit practice here on Tuesdays. A couple of the ladies have adopted a ketogenic diet and they're always asking me questions about training and their power and, and why do they feel so bad and how long it takes. And one girl had said, So well, I guess just everybody's different. Some people just need more carbs, and I said, when you, yeah, some people do uh, need more carbs to perform better. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for your health. So even though you may perform better with more carbs, and you're not willing to give it up, there is a price you have to pay to be a glucose dependent athlete, and that price is paid in uh, how toxic sugar is to the system. Now, I, have you read the Alex Hutchison piece ar- article about how so many endurance athletes are pre-diabetic?
1: Sure. No, I and, and I have personal experiences on that. You know, the um, first of all, I'll insert a funny thing. I mean, there is no such thing as a, as a, as a friendly criterion, just by the way.
0: <laughs> well, we're ladies and we're
1: polite. You're trying to rip each other's legs off. So, but, um, <laughs> So anyway, getting back into, I can't tell you how many professional cyclists I've seen go pretty much pre-diabetic or whatever you want to call it, insulin resistant, uh, you know, and even to the point of almost being obese and overweight after a professional cycling career because they just consumed carbs year around, day after day every race every part of their life was carb centric and i mean this was the this is the motto and it still is the motto in many like italian teams for example you know and some of the newer forward-thinking teams like team sky and um you know and uh and you know he's kind of probably one of the only ones on his team doing this stuff but anyway point is is when you bombard your system with carbs for so many years the health result when you especially when you stop and and i suspect they have insulin resistance even while they're racing and i have hundreds of pro tour cyclist labs that actually show this so i'm there's no question that you know when you stick to a high carb Lifestyle and you're exercising in a, a high volume. That's just not a good thing for longevity.
0: No, I, I, I'm i sure you have read Dr. Maffetone and Paul Lars, Professor Paul Larson's paper on fit but unhealthy. Yeah, and about how there's so many endurance athletes who are fit but they're unhealthy, and it's. The price is to be paid in your health if you stick to that sugar dependence. If you don't want to take the time to become keto-adapted or fat-adapted or or train your body to burn fat, however you want to say it, if you are an athlete who consumes carbohydrates all the time and rely on that to be able to stay keep up with your friends, you're not willing to ride it back of the pack for a little while, then you may be paying the price in all the diseases associated with insulin resistance. And uh, I don't probably need to tell you if you do a Google search and, or not a Google search, but a PubMed search and look up insulin resistance, there's quite a litany of diseases associated with insulin resistance.
1: Yeah. I mean, just go, I think just go to the Verda health, Verda health website, you know, with Sarah Hallberg and, Steve Finney and Jeff Follick and all the things that they're showing. um, Yeah, I mean, there's just no doubt, you know, they're exposing, you know, what the regular standard American diet is, but how they're reversing it. But anyway, you can see all the disease stuff there. It's really passive. All
0: right. So we talked about the adaptation period. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how do you know you're keto adapted? That's another big question that... I get a lot, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if you get that question quite a bit, but people are like, how do I know I'm there? What, what, what sign should I look for whenever I know that I finally adapted?
1: Well, I'm going to go back to my orthopedic surgeon friend, and he, he is a classic example of what it means when you become fat-adapted. And, you know, his journey is always ongoing, but I'll never forget. Uh, I came back and, you know, he'd obviously, he lost like 20, 30 pounds. But one of the first things he said to me, he goes, I don't get angry at people anymore.
0: <laughs> uh, that's a good one.
1: Because I mean, surgeons are like kind of known for, you know, being snotheads heads in the uh, operating room, you know, to to put it lightly, I guess and he had certainly had that reputation and he said one of the yeah I'll, I'll never forget this he, he just flat out told me that yeah I don't really yell at people anymore and and I was like well that's a that that's a for sure sign that this is working and you're you're not glucose addicted in your brain as much as you were and that your fat metabolism is kind of kicking in so anyway, that that's one thing. Your your mentation, um, you know, and how you react and your your calmness, and you know, you don't get the you know, the sugar knocks just telling your brain that you, you gotta have sugar now. And once you get over that, that you you actually become a more pleasant person in many ways.
0: Yes. I remember when I was at the Deep down in my when I was really messed up and I had the adrenal fatigue, I was a very angry and cranky and nasty person. And now I hopefully am I, I feel like I'm a much nicer and less angry person and, and I can attest that the athletes I work with are feel better and are, are healthier. And I also on the on the converse of that, athletes even though All of the athletes that I work with are in some stage of keto adaptation that if they go to a, I had an athlete who went to a, he had a big business meeting and had been working a lot of hours and he went on like a week long sugar binge and, um, not maybe it was a weekend. It wasn't that long, but he was a very cranky person after that and very depressed. So I think that, you know, looking at those indicators is definitely something that you can tell externally about like, are you keto adapted and, um, or should you work on, keep working on your keto adaptation?
1: Well, I'll say to that, you know, I mean, before I go over the, the, the other signs to, to know that you're, you're fat adapted, um, or keto adapted, as you say, um, you know, there's many studies showing that depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia um, are all improved on a ketogenic diet, and the literature is well written on it. Um, the book is Principia Ketogenica, and it has all the references in there. But I mean, you could you could PubMed most of this stuff. But yeah, I think there's a there's a definite treatment modality for psychiatric um, disorders using diet you know and um, is it Dr. Anne Childs um, who gets really into this she's a uh, psychiatrist and kind of touts the you know the effects of you know a low carbohydrate diet as it relates to mental health anyway
0: have you looked at this work by Georgia Eid She's, a, yeah, uh, she's,
1: a, she's another um, doctor who, yeah, who gets into this as well. So some of the ways you know you're keto adapted, I mean, uh, I learned from my friend Barry Murray. Um, you know, he's, he's an Irish uh, Irish national ultra, ultra runner, BMC, pro tour cycling team, nutritionist uh, back in the day. You know, and now he just kind of does his own thing. Anyway, he and I go back and forth on this a lot. I mean, when you wake up and you're not hungry in the morning, that's a great sign that you're bad adapted. The second thing I would say is you can train fasted and feel okay about it. You know, you don't feel like you need to take that gel or or have just water in your bottle. Um, That when you train and you're like, yeah, I'm good – on an empty stomach or just black coffee and everything's going well. That's a, so I, I would say that's the number two sign, uh, that you're, you know, you're keto adapted or fat adapted. Uh, the other big thing no need for snacks. Um, when you, you can truly say that you don't need that little, I don't know, piece of chocolate or bar or gel or whatever it may be. And you're not hungry between meals. That that's another sign that you know your insulin sensitivity has stabilized, and you know you just don't need it. Uh, I would say the next thing is you can intermittently fast. You know, so you start to do like eight to twelve hour fasts. Um, every Monday, I do a twenty four to thirty six hour fast. I'm not going to say it was easy at first. Uh, I've been doing it for some years now, but yeah, I have no problems. Drink my coffee. I'll actually have bone broth when I do it. Um, But anyway, when you can intermittent fast, you know, without chewing your arm off, as they say, uh, that's another sign that you are becoming fat-adapted. Uh, and I think another big thing that applies to athletes, the next one is that you're not hungry after training.
0: Yeah, that's a big one.
1: Meaning that you know you just don't feel like you got you have to eat the house when you get home or or whatever. When you can keep your cool and like you know and take time and I don't know cook your recovery meal instead of drinking it, um, I, I think that says a lot about how well fat adapted you are, you know? And then like when I get home now, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll make a little rice and eggs or something like that. After I do a, like a, you know, I'll do a four hour ride or something, four or five hour ride, you know, you should eat some carbs after that kind of thing. But anyway, I don't, down a protein drink out of, it. it doesn't cause me anxiety or anything, you know? So anyway, that's, you know, and I think, for athletes, that's probably the big one. Like you, you're kind of, I'm sure you have something to say with that.
0: Well, I I agree with you. <laughs> so it's a, yeah. And I tell my athletes that you probably shouldn't eat anything. If you're not hungry, you don't have to eat until you're hungry or your next meal. So don't worry about it or freak out that you're like, you're not going to get in enough. Like you said, the chocolate milk within 30 minutes. Don't worry about it. And for cyclists, I coach a fair amount of cyclists. So I tell them it's about the time that you want to cool down, put away your clothes, you know, change your clothes, put away your bike. And then if you want something to eat, eat then. But you don't, you sh- I don't think you should eat right away. It's, uh, you want to let like your your body cool down and any carbohydrates that you have in the system to be absorbed and and just your system to relax. And most people aren't hungry after they get done with especially a hard effort. You know, usually you don't want to eat right away.
1: And that's you know, and most people most working stiffs, you know, like, you know, you and I we have day jobs. Um you you train 1 to 2 hours, you I would say you shouldn't be eating after that anyway i mean there's just there's just no reason to eat um and and so many people are are like in the reef there it's a reflex to eat and even worse it's a reflex to like drink a huge bolus of sugar after that you know in in the form of a protein shake or whatever um and and it's just mind-boggling to me Well, they
0: have been told that you have to replenish those glycogen stores. God forbid that your body body has fat to burn off of and you actually need to fill up those glycogen stores. But I think that that's the big confusion is that there's a lot of marketing out there to help corporations or companies sell their product. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with what's best for your health or performance
1: exactly yeah it's very well said um and, and again you got to put it in context as we said at the first of the podcast you know um you take one of the pros pro cyclist guys you know who's doing three to six hours you know very hard and you know comparatively yeah those guys probably can't put enough calories in into them at times it's just, just not possible for what they do Um, and during the season yeah they should come back make a a proper recovery drink which that's a whole another subject you know i don't uh, i'm not so much about using the, the the processed protein powders anymore um you know i'm more about kind of making a whole foods quote unquote you know recovery drink if you will like you know using like kefir avocado you know some essential amino acids um putting you know and you know maybe some mct oil in there with salt and you know anyway get creative about it but and then um yeah just try to get away from the stuff that's made to stay on the shelf uh three to six months you know (laughs) Uh, or indefinitely you know yeah and then the and then you take it down a step to the you know the people just trying to finish the grand fondos and stuff you you really got to not do that stuff i mean it's so important and just eat just make your own food and eat it afterwards and 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 it's a, just knocking out drinking your calories makes makes a huge difference uh you know in in just amateur athletes i think
0: i agree and i i think that just learning to listen to your body too learning yeah li- learning to listen to what is real hunger or are you connecting emotions to hunger or um stress to hunger just learning to look at those cues and figuring out what is my real, my body saying to me? Is my body saying, hey, I need fuel? And if you're relatively overweight, if you have extra pounds to lose, then the answer is probably you don't need that much fuel because you have fuel stored. Not saying you don't need to eat. You can eat. But just realize that there are situations if you wake up in the morning And you get in that, you know, you go to the office and your boss gives you a hard assignment or a deadline that you feel you can't meet. And then you're all of a sudden hungry. Think about that may be associated with stress. That's not necessarily true hunger. And I think that learning to listen to those cues and learning to feel, you know, feel out what your body really needs and to give it real food and to to think about those things Really helps people become better adapted. We, I I believe, we talked about stress before in the last time we talked, but stress Mm -hmm. is is the enemy of becoming keto adapted. So learning those signals of stress also helps with adaptation. But that's
1: yeah. One thing I'll put add in an interesting thing I do every morning. Um, You know, I like the like you know like Ben Greenfield does. I like the Tianchi herbs. Um, so I'll take those because I know they're a good quality Chinese herbs, uh, but I'll do that first thing in the morning and then I'll do breathing exercises to where I hold my breath like two to four minutes, um, you know, with a period of kind of semi hyperventilation. Um, but I'll tell you that little zone you get into that you're just kind of in a flow state. I just do that every morning. Um, and I'll tell you that takes away stress like none other. So, and just to give you an idea of how stressful my job is, I mean, one of my jobs today was you know to give the anesthesia and shock a patient into a malignant rhythm and then shock them out of it. <laughs> so so anyway, let's get um timing of carbohydrate intake. Let's you know, we already talked about, it depends where you are in the season, you know, like if you're in the off season, you know, it might be much different than the in season, but, you know, for like, I'll give a couple examples, like in an ultra marathoner, you know, I I've seen guys, you know, like some of Peter Defty's runners, uh, for example, you know, from the Vespa power, Vespa power sports stuff, you know, I've seen some of those guys get through, a hundred mile race with basically a thousand calories and they, but they might take during the race, they might have a Coke or two and maybe a little gel here and some cheese and some pickle juice. My point is, is timing of calories in those kind of races um, or timing of carbohydrates, I, I think is fascinating in the sense that, Most of those guys don't use any carbohydrates, but once they get in the event, they'll use them. And when they use them in the event, it really works.
0: Right. They've become so sensitive to the carbohydrates that they are like rocket fuel.
1: Yeah. And the same thing happens in cycling to an extent. Um, uh, They can't get away with the same thing the ultra runner guys do. You know, I think uh, during a cycling event, if you want to be the cleanest, you know, and I'm talking pro cycling here, um, like Sven Tuft, he's a classic example. I just interviewed him uh, through Road Bike Action Magazine, and it's in this month, I believe. Oh, cool. Well,
0: uh, we'll have to have a link to that.
1: Yeah, he he really is against taking protein supplements and you know just like I said stuff that's made to stay on the shelf six months he just he just does not use that stuff Um, even though the team's sponsored by it you know he, he eats an enormous he'll eat rice cakes during the he, his own homemade rice cakes during races and say you know and he just did the giro d'italia for example you know and and he even said that during that he'll do rice cakes through the first three hours. And then the last, you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth hours, you know, he'll slowly transition if he really needs it into the fast sugars, like gels and such. But he really reserves the timing of those carbohydrates, you know, that most people would use the whole race but he uses them just for the end, you know, but the rest of his time it's just rice cakes and that's pretty much what he eats, you know, and you know, he'll use a little mix. So anyway, that's, that's a professional cyclist. Now let's take the, you know, let's take a master cyclist or a cat three cyclist or a four cyclist. And those guys Load themselves with carbohydrates until they're silly in the head. Oh, I know. And I mean, they don't, it's just so crazy how they think they need these sugar boluses to perform well, and it's just not the case. So, anyway, those guys, their sugar timing, uh, you know, it should probably be, you know, eat a good breakfast and and use it at the at the end of a 2 hour road race if you really need it. Right. And and that's it, you know.
0: I think the con- the confusion is for people like we talked about earlier in the call that it takes a long time to adapt, but if you're very insulin resistant, it takes a lot more carbohydrate to get a bump. If you are, you know, well pre insulin resistance is basically pre pre-diabetes. That uh, once you start that, your body is so desensitized to the the fuel you give it. It takes massive amounts to to feel like you're getting any benefit from it, and additionally, it's causing that much more damage in your system.
1: So I I think that I yeah we go back to the uh, yeah to the damaging damaging effects. Um, You know, just yeah, constant carb consumption. You know, but in the timing for those guys, you're right. You just have to – they just – they have to keep feeding themselves carbs in that, in that example because, yeah, they're just going to crash. Their, right. their, their, their brain glucose levels are going to crash. And, I mean, if you really want to get into this, you just go back to the central governor theory, you know, from Tim Noakes and some of his physiology experiments. And you can see clearly that it's not the muscles that need the sugar because, be clear, I don't care what sugar you take during a two-hour event, none of that is getting to your muscles. There are other processes he's going to, but it takes 48, 24 to 48 hours to form glucose into the glycogen that is used for muscle energy. What you're doing when you need that glucose is feeding your brain, and, and pretty much that's it. You know, there, there are some other processes like liver, some, some liver um, glucose metabolism is going on, there's some other lactic acid buffering things going on. But for the most part, you're just feeding the brain. And I've heard time after time these nutrition company guy people come out and tell the racers, like, yeah, when you drink our mix, that's going straight to your muscles during the race. And it could not be further from the truth, you know?
0: Well, and – it's almost like they're drug dealers because if you get somebody hooked on sugar, it's really hard to get them off. So like you were talking about your cat three cyclists and who want to do well, or the masters athletes that are, are trying to keep up, you know, stay young that if you are sugar dependent and if these athletes have been training for years with a glucose based metabolism, they are definitely glycogen dependent that uh, they just don't want to back off. They're addicted to the sugar. So it's going to be, it's going to be a hard blow when they give it up. So a lot of times when, when people first, the first week of switching from a glucose metabolism to a keto metabolism is pretty rough.
1: Yeah, that's and that's a whole that's a whole another subject. And just just to correct you, it's not glycogen dependence. I mean, it's you know your body makes glycogen and in, in a, you know in terms of what it needs. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's more the it's more the you know you get into the brain structures like the amygdala and the you know thalamus. All all those things become glucose dependent. Um, just like drugs, it's no different than being addicted to a drug. And I mean, there's actually a great study showing with the uh, rats, they actually fed them like cocaine, heroin, and glucose. And the most addictive substance was the glucose.
0: Right. Well, I will stop saying glycogen dependent now.
1: <laughs> so yeah, yeah. This is so. There's a yeah. I mean, it's just you know, glycogen is a really complex structure. Actually, it's, it's it's actually fascinating when you when you study the physiology of glycogen. You know, it's it's pretty cool. So, something well, I did.
0: but that's good to know because I don't want to be using the wrong terms, and I think that it's um.
1: That's why you have me.
0: (laughs) I know. I am so excited that you're on the podcast. I love talking to you, Jonathan. I feel so privileged that I even know you and I can text you and ask you to come on my podcast.
1: It's all good.
0: So let's talk about fasting insulin levels. Uh, That's something because a lot of people want like a tangible evidence aside from the physiological evidence that they feel better, their, their performance is coming back up, they're losing weight. But uh, I was told that the fasting insulin levels should be below five to be to show that you are well, you don't have a problem with your insulin levels. So uh, is, is that a, a good number? I mean, my fasting insulin levels are two last time I checked, so I know I'm pretty low. But
1: yeah mine mine as well you know i've always been under you know one you know two three four and i i don't uh the insulin levels are not really measured below one just so you know they're the the lab tests just aren't that sensitive you know for the ones that we write for anyway i have to you know from a health standpoint absolutely you know Five, six, seven, eight, um I think it's in um you know micrograms per deciliter kind of thing. That's where you want your insulin from a health perspective. Now from you know from an athlete's perspective, it depends when you take the test. You know, if you're fully rested, yeah, your insulin will probably come back really low. But you know, if you go back, um If you you take the test the day after, you know, a really hard ride, I've seen insulin levels kind of be falsely elevated if, you know, if you want to say that. So it's very important to discern the two, you know. So if you're completely rested, yep, insulin less than five probably means you're pretty well insulin sensitive. You know, it's certainly not the whole picture. Right. Right. Um, and then the other thing is you have to ask for the test. I mean, most docs and, you know, then you get nurse practitioners and all that, they have no idea about, you could even order insulin, except if you're an endocrinologist and, and it's a shame because it's a cheap test to order.
0: Yeah, Here in Phoenix, you can order your own fasting insulin test for Sonoran Quest Labs and it's 12 bucks.
1: There you go, yeah, you know, and then and and, and, and you got to go struggle with your family doc to to even get it because they're just they don't even know what to do with it and and, and I mean it's it's becoming more evident, you know, uh, again, going back to like the Verta health studies, um, I think it'll be mainstream here, you know, in the next near future, but I can't I talk to doctors about this, and they just like. It, they just don't get it. And, and I just, it just dumbfounds me how people with, you know, 15 years of education just can't wrap their heads around it.
0: Well, that's one of my questions, too. I mean, not necessarily related to keto adaptation, nutrient timing, but you're very informed with a uh, critical thinker. And it it seems like you definitely get keto adaptation. Why are there so many doctors and sports professionals that don't understand these concepts?
1: I'd I'd say it's just from your original education. You know, you, you kind of go off your original, you know, originally what you were taught is number one. Number two is herd mentality. Day one of medical school. Don't, go against the grain if if the standard of care is this you need to go with the standard um you know especially with the nurse practitioners like a lot of those guys girls gals are independent nowadays and they don't even have a medical school education so to speak so they go with the herd they just go with what the papers say you know and then you got to realize all these pharma companies are the ones sponsoring some of the medical school activities, and Eli Lilly was gave us all kinds of stuff before the government stopped you know telling them to you know to do so um, and then it's continuing education you know you get to a point where you just want to like, get on with your life and your practice and and learning something new and really, really putting your mind into it is kind of like going to medical school again. And you know, that's what I kind of had to do to learn all this stuff. I, I basically just went to medical school again on my own. Um, and most docs who are kind of forward thinking will tell you the same thing. Um, you know, and then finally, you know, it's just a it's just a mindset, and it just paradigm shifts need to need to take place before you know it becomes you know mainstream thinking um so i i think it's a it's a difficult thing to really answer but that's that's part of those are some of the reasons
0: i think that that sounds like a great answer and uh, and i understand some of that like when i was talking to debbie potts last week, we were talking about how we had come to our conclusions and learned all these things because we were both broken. So we were trying to figure out how to feel better. And both of us now do feel better and perform better. But I think that we had a a crisis that forced us to do that. But it doesn't, it sounds like you were just curious
1: um, both, you know, I had, I've always known about ketones and, you know, how it can help, you know, neural healing and all that kind of stuff. You know, I did some of that on my residency. And then when I had my own, you know, kind of hit my head and a little cranial nerve injury, that's when I really got into it. The, the other thing I'll go on is a vivid example is like the American Diabetic Association. They support three diets. They support the DASH diet, they support a low-fat diet, and they support the Mediterranean diet. That's it. And and it's all weak evidence. When you look at why they support, I believe it's the DASH diet, they're going off one study that had 35 people in it, and it had a high dropout rate. And, I mean, you just kind of like – look at that and you just you just shake your head going how is this almost national policy you know in a sense
0: right i had a client that came to me because his he had high triglycerides and he had uh, his doctor put him on the dash diet he had high blood pressure too even though he's a lean lean guy and, uh, he, he, felt horrible on the dash diet. He's like, this diet's making me sick, but I'm so afraid of dying because his doctor scared him saying like, you're going to have a heart attack and die. We, I said, Oh no, let's, let's look at this. And I put him on a, a ketogenic diet and he was using a lot of industrial seed oils, which I'm sure contributed to some inflammation in his body. Mm. He switched all of his oils and, uh, Switched to a low-carbohydrate diet, and he wasn't even super strict, but in three months, his numbers started to improve, and then six months later, his, his numbers looked fabulous. So, And he was so thrilled. He was like, I can't believe you told me to do the exact opposite of what the doctor told me. He told me to eat fat and uh, real meat, animal, red meat, add as much salt as I wanted, <laughs> and to change, uh, make sure my fats were all natural sources. And he did great, and he feels great. He's very thrilled. so, yeah. I, yeah. so but, I apologize the keep I didn't mean to interrupt you. no, go ahead. Oh, well, you were talking about the three diets. the dash diet only had thirty five participants and it, uh, and it was ridiculous that the American diet
1: used in the study they quote I mean, there's other dash diet studies that have a lot more than that, but I mean, I'm just saying it's you know it, it was just a crazy example to me that uh an association as big as the american Dietetic association would rest their their trust in that one study and this is crazy and there's others but anyway it's it's on there go on the website
0: i'll put a link in it
1: what i was going to say is there's um you know it's pretty clear i mean there there is no other diet that decreases triglycerides, or I, sh- I, I should say that even, there's no other intervention, diet or medication, that decreases triglycerides as powerfully as a low-carbohydrate diet. It just, there, we, we can't throw any medication at it. You know, we had a case, you know, and people eating prude all the time, for example, we had a case of a, you know, a guy of a patient with, you know, 800 to 1000 um, levels of triglycerides and kind of, you know, the cardiologist I work with, he put him on a low carbohydrate diet trying to get them down. And one month went by, it wouldn't go down. And then when the guy swore up and down, he was sticking to the diet. And then, uh, or, you know, I, I hate to call it a diet, you know, it's really a lifestyle. Right. Um the second month he comes in, triglycerides are still way up and he still st- says he's sticking to the you know lower carb lifestyle kind of thing. And and then the third month it comes and the, the guy's triglycerides are still sky high, over a thousand. And the, the cardiologist says, You're gonna die. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> and the guy starts he breaks down and cries, literally. And he goes, Why are you crying? And he goes, I can't help it I eat one entire bunch of grapes with dinner every night and I'm addicted to them <laughs> anyway so
0: yeah people give fruit a pass that they should not right. be giving
1: that's what I'm saying he, they, yes. he, gave, he gave fruit a pass and and lo and behold when he cut out the fruit his triglycerides came down to less than a hundred
0: imagine that Yes. That's awesome. That's a great story.
1: It is. Yeah. It's a, I like to share that one. And it's a real life thing, you know. You know.
0: I think that a lot of times people, think they call things healthy because they've been brainwashed to think that they're healthy. I, I think the words getting out that healthy whole grains are not healthy. So that's, that's out there. But some fruit gets a pass by a lot of people whenever it's, it's fructose. And even it's still having an effect on your body. And like our mutual friend Peter Defty says quite often that fruit was only available a, a couple times a year. You know, back, you know, five
1: most cultures, Yeah. Most right.
0: cultures. And most and at the time, whenever they would eat them, you know, the body would, you know, store some fat and you could eat a whole bunch of it. And but you're gonna fast or go back to full keto not much longer after that. So it generally wasn't a problem, but we ship in fruit like we live in well in Phoenix we have a nice weather year round. Well, not all necessarily nice for some people in the summer, but we can grow stuff year round here. But other places, fruit wasn't available but just a couple months out of the year. And it's not natural for even oranges and citrus fruit here to, to be available twenty four seven. They didn't have grocery stores five thousand years ago that you can go and have kiwis shipped in from Australia or you know, fruit just isn't really a part of a natural diet
1: they didn't even have grocery stores a hundred years ago
0: right. <laughs> yes oh. true let's move on to the subject of research there is not a ton of research out there. I was just at Low Carb USA, and the uh, I met Jeff Wallack and Stephen Finney, and I have to say they weren't near as kind as I thought they would be. I wanted to say you know how thankful I was. They wrote their book, and I love their research, and uh, they weren't that nice to me. But, uh, but aside from that, so Jeff Folk and Steve Finney have sent, done some research. There's some new research, a new, well, it's not even that new, a paper by in 2014 by Keith Barr, which I think is a great paper, the nutrition and the adaptation to endurance training.
1: Uh
0: huh. And so that one's an, a paper from 2014 that talks about how, uh, Keto adaptation, nutrient timing is a real thing. I'll put a link in the show notes, and I don't remember the whole summary of it, but it's it's nice to show that there is some research out there going on that it wasn't out there before. When I met with uh, Jeff Fullick, I was telling him we were practicing nutrient timing with my clients, and he said, "Well, you're ahead of the science because there's not science out there for that." I think that the study by Keith Barr is useful in that context, that there are some studies happening. And I know uh, professor Paul Larson has, is doing a lot of research and that he's having papers published that are really promoting a low carbohydrate diet, but he actually (laughs) side note. He went to publish a paper about low carbohydrate diets for athletes, and it was rejected by the fact that he had been on podcasts like my podcast and other podcasts promoting a ketogenic lifestyle. That was the exact comment from the wow. reviewer of his paper.
1: I'll be yeah, that's that's uh, that's modern, that's standard. Medicine for you,
0: yeah. Right, going against the grain, uh, leaving the herd, going out on your own. Yeah. I would like to know that to the folks that um, are listening to this, I met Paul at a endurance coaching summit with Training Peaks, and he had, was telling me that all of the New Zealand in- athletes for the New Zealand ed- Olympics are a fair amount of keto adapted or fat adapted because he helped write the protocols for their nutrition and they won more medals at the last Olympics than they ever had in history. And it's a country of, uh, I believe four or 5 million people, which I can't remember which one it was, but I just remember it was less people than the Phoenix metropolitan
1: area. Right. Yeah.
0: So I thought that was very, uh, it was a good example of what can happen when you, you you put people on that route
1: for sure. No, that's uh, yeah, that's, it's all interesting. Yeah. I definitely encourage people to read Keith bars work from Dr. is from UC Davis. He's a, uh, uh, basically a molecular physiologist, um, muscle physiologist and he's worked with, you know, so many people like uh, stem cell podcast where he has two parts on there is that's a, I think that's a must listen for anybody trying to understand, you know, yes. we are, you know, we're talking about,
0: I will put a link in the show notes uh, about to that interview because it's really a great interview. I don't know if you listen to his part about gelatin and the vitamin C, but sure. I I started, I made um, my own, I just got unflavored gelatin and then made it with water and had it become like a gummy and then, and put a little lemon oil, citrus oil. And then if I was going to use it for, I actually added a little coconut oil if I wanted to use it for bike rides and added some vitamin C said that, and that your, your tendons will absorb that the gelatin and help repair tendon problems did you hear that part
1: yeah i've read the whole studies he actually has a couple papers on that and yeah um yeah he's just showing that when you injure when you when, when you injure the collagen you know surrounding the tendons by making available the gelatin you know the things in gelatin, which contain the amino acids, mainly proline and some other, you know, other substances. When you make those things available prior to working out, you actually can observe, you know, an increased healing rate of tendon and ligament damage. Um, You know, and he's shown that in several models. And then he also throws the caveat matching the vitamin C uh, in there. And I think one thing, really important thing to point out about vitamin C I mean, without vitamin C, you don't make hair, collagen, ligaments, tendons. You know, vitamin C is huge for that. But what most people don't get is that when your blood sugars, rise, and I believe, I'd have to look up the research, but I believe it's like even up to 120, whenever you get what's called a state of hyperglycemia in the 120s and 130s, vitamin C does not enter the cell in any efficient manner. So a state of hyperglycemia effectively nullifies any vitamin C that you might have taken, i.e., a glass of orange juice. Getting vitamin C out of a glass of orange juice is just...
0: Which is funny you say that, because he uses a glass of orange juice as an example. Exactly.
1: He he said that, and I I wanted to call him out on it. I was like, you know, you do know to get cellular uptake of vitamin C, you kind of need a low glucose state.
0: Ah, that's a good one, Jonathan. I uh, I don't you. I just bought citric acid, and I sprinkled it on my gummies. But I've been doing a lot of weightlifting, and sometimes my knees would hurt from squats and uh, get a little more aches and pains. But I have not been sore at all since I started doing. I mean, I still get a little muscle soreness, but not nothing in my knees or my shoulders like I had before. So I don't know if it's the the gummies, but I'm still doing them.
1: Cool. Now it's as we get older, man. It's gotta do everything you can. Yeah,
0: I'm aging backwards, Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm forty-nine and I feel better than I ever have in my entire life. And I think it's because I grew up in the eighties, in the seventies and eighties and The low-fat diet was the craze. My mom had a family history of heart disease, and she was paranoid of having a heart attack like both her parents. And we ate low-fat everything, had cereal for breakfast, and I don't think I ever felt good until I really started, I switched to a ketogenic diet. So I feel like I've got the second half of my life is going to be better than the first half.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so I think on the nutrient timing thing, um, you know, which was kind of the basis of this podcast, you know, I definitely say, you know, in kind of like a final notes or whatever, you know, when you're fat adapted, don't be afraid to take the glucose while you're exercising, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, just, you just kind of kind of find out what works for you, you know, and it depends on where you are in the journey of, what what is going to work you know for each person
0: yeah and i i think that like i have a fair number of people in my facebook group that don't want to ever add any carbohydrates and i tell them you don't ever have to add any carbohydrates they will make you faster so if you want to add them you can but you don't have to
1: yeah, and, and I mean, if you're working out at an amateur level and all that kind of things, that's absolutely right, you know. So, but you know, like I, I always preface it, you know, once you get to the elite levels and really, really high levels, you know, it just you gotta add some.
0: Right, it makes a difference. I think when I was talking to Peter uh, years ago, and he was working with an ultra runner. And they had tested out without the carbohydrates and without, with the carbohydrates, it was a minute and 20 seconds difference in their pace. And that's the difference between winning and losing. That's the difference between a recreational athlete and an elite athlete.
1: Right, right.
0: So it, it does make a difference. But if you have no interest of going faster and you don't care, you're like, hey, I, I just like the way I feel in this state, then you don't ever have to add in any carbs.
1: I think that's well said. Yeah. So I hope people get out of it. There's not an easy answer.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: You're not going to read it in a book or somebody's going to give you a list or some formula to follow. It's just not that easy. That's what I hope people got out of it.
0: I hope so too. And the fact that like, it's, you know, it's very individual and it just takes a while, but it's worth the effort. If you take the time and have the patience, your body's going to thank you later
1: uh yeah there's zero there's zero question about that you will you'll feel better possibly live longer um and you know get through many things in life you know much easier
0: yes very true well thank you so much for your time jonathan i appreciate it